This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Colbert Report, The Progressive, Mumia Abu-Jamal, The Daily Show, Counterspin, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, and Comedian Lee Camp with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Progressive. Nation, with us to have you good. I am so outraged that I can't keep my sentences straight. Because our enemies in Iran, led by their fanatical Ayatollah Khamenei, have perpetrated a new human rights crackdown on the Iranian people. When are you going to intervene, President Obama? Iran arms and funds Hezbollah, they crush peaceful demonstrators, and they refuse to wear ties even when formal attire is called for. (laughs) This is garden elegant at best, and bordering on casual Friday, you monster! I am sorry I am so worked up about fashion, folks. It's just that Iran has now imposed a necklace ban for men. This is an outrage. People of Iran, rise up, throw off your chains, then throw on your chains. (laughs) Without a necklace, how is a man supposed to communicate his virility? A chain is the universal language that says to women, I will not call you after we have sex. (laughs) Folks. And this is just the latest component of Iran's, quote, moral security plan designed to combat the Western cultural invasion and enforced by more than 70,000 moral police on the streets. They're like the fashion police who would stone the fashion police. Now, not only, not only has Iran banned necklaces, they're also prohibiting shorts. That's right. Now they're attacking Daisy Duke. (laughs) Folks, we cannot let the Iranian people suffer alone. It is time to take a stand. the taste of this, you Ahmadina jerks? Are these shorts getting you in the Mahmoud? So my Iranian brothers, embrace the bedrock western value of short shorts. Who knows, the Ayatollah might be a lot less angry if he got some air down there. Our war president promised more war. While he trumpeted his big Afghanistan speech as the first step in ending that war, Barack Obama essentially told the American people that tens of thousands of our soldiers would still be fighting there for at least three more years. The president's rhetoric overall was hideous. The tide of war is receding, he said. But war is not a fact of nature like an ocean. It's a rash act of rulers. 
Then when he decided to draw the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan, Obama simply fed the American superiority complex, saying we must embrace America's singular role in the course of human events. And he held up Libya as an example of how the U.S. ought to intervene in the future. Plus, he said, we stand not for empire, but for self-determination. That's a bad joke. When the U.S. has troops in 150 countries, it's hard to maintain the assertion that we're not an empire. But Obama refused to come clean, choosing once more to play the role he's carved out for himself, that of a more reasonable-sounding steward of a foreign policy that for more than a century now has been awash in national delusions and has served the interests not of the American people, but of the tiny slice at the top, including the masters of war. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. I'm your masters of war. Here they build the big guns Here they build the death planes Here they build all the bombs Here they hide behind walls Here they hide behind discs I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks you that never done nothing But built to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy Good night, Afghanistan. A calm and cool American president announces a small withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, less than 10% of the total in an expression of nonchalance that masks the limit of empire. In an address remarkable for its brevity, President Barack Obama essentially announced success, lectured Afghanistan on its responsibilities to secure its territory, and noted coming troop withdrawals. Anyone who lived through U.S. wars abroad has heard similar statements before, but I doubt they've heard what Obama said before, that the U.S is not an empire. That's surely news to dozens of countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, which have had their leaders chosen, armed, or removed by the U.S. This is not the end, but it is the beginning of the end. And it ends not that differently from that of the former Soviet occupation, albeit slower, for both empires were drained of wealth and will. In the wake of the earth-shaking economic fall of 2008, the U.S. was left with limited resources. Also, polls showed dwindling support for the continuing war effort. With an election coming, among dramatically high unemployment, military drawdowns might re-energize disaffected Democratic voters. The president suggested al-Qaeda's crippling and the Taliban's humbling, with the latter being brought to the bargaining table. But the Taliban is far from humbled. Just a month ago, they hit one of Afghanistan's major cities, immobilized it for 30 hours, and attacked important military and government targets with ease. Using suicide bombers and small arms, several dozen men hit the governor's office, police headquarters, the transportation police headquarters, and several military buildings. One observer in the strike in Kandahar said, Shell casings fell to the streets like hail after a storm. Kandahar is more than a big city. It's the biggest in southern Afghanistan, 
and a major NATO base. One Kandaharian asks, how are they able to occupy nearby buildings and stage themselves so they can shoot on the governor's office and the NDS department? NDS is the Afghan Intelligence Agency. It's CIA. Answering his own question, Kandahar's Mohammed Umar Sati suggested either the security forces are incompetent or they have no coordination among each other. The Taliban are itching for the hour of American withdrawal, at which time will come a reckoning. Empires, like individuals, can tire. It was not for naught that Afghanistan has been called the graveyard of empires. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Just a leaning on my shovel in this graveyard of dreams, yeah, that's me. Just a leaning on my shovel in this graveyard of dreams. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. I want to lead you to an armchair Deep back in the files of my mind I wanna sit you in a candle's light Where I've been spending all of my time will last me But obviously, our main story is the president's address to the nation last night. His first since that night two months ago when he informed us that he had personally killed Osama bin Laden with his bare hands. And he's walking down the same carpet again. I wonder if we got Hitler this time! When I announced this surge at West Point, we set clear objectives to refocus on al-Qaeda, to reverse the Taliban's momentum, and train Afghan security forces to defend their own country. We are meeting our goals. Oh my God, the Afghanistan war. It's finally over 10 years. I don't, can someone get me a nurse to kiss in the street? I can't believe, <laughs> tell me more. Starting next month, we will be able to remove 10,000 of our troops from Afghanistan by the end of this year. And we will bring home a total of 33,000 troops by next summer. Huh? That's it? Came out to announce that the troops that you sent to Afghanistan a year and a half ago are going to be incrementally removed from that country over the next year and a half? Putting us at a troop commitment level still above the one that was there when you took office? I mean... It's not nothing, but did you really have to walk all the way down the hallway to do that? I mean, could, couldn't you just shout it as you were walking by? Hey, we're going to trim back a bit on one of our wars. <laughs> FYI. Just do it as a Facebook status update? You really? You, ha you had to do this as a nationwide address? All right. Well, let's see how it played on 
uh, uh, Fox, uh, uh, the conservatives, the portion of the country whose views are never... All right, just play it. Why do I see politics all over this? President Obama's playing politics now. This is 100% political about shoring up his base. Clearly meant to mollify the anti-war left. He needs to appease the left wing of his own party. I know he's got to appease those morons like the code pink chicks. All right, so the speech was like red meat for the left, or should I say tofurkey? For the left. Man, for the left, that speech must have been like finding out that a Volvo and a Subaru had made it and given birth to a recumbent bicycle. Right? I'm disappointed. Removing the 33,000 troops in over a year in our budget crisis is not nearly good enough. It is a no-win policy. In my opinion, it's not enough. It's going at a slower pace than I think is necessary. The Afghanistan war is going on 10 years now. If it were a kid, it would be in the fifth grade. Yes, this war is like a 10-year-old child, and that's why we must end it. Wait, hold on. <laughs> Sixth grade is the tough year, I will say. <laughs> so it seems that Barack Obama has pulled off an incredible feat. He has given a speech nobody liked. Somehow he has found and touched America on our anti-G spot. But I believe this speech contained a strong hint of the problem this president is facing as he seeks to create the Obama doctrine for the war on terrorism. We must chart a more centered course. Like generations before, we must embrace America's singular role in the course of human events. But we must be as pragmatic as we are passionate, as strategic as we are resolute. When threatened, we must respond with force. But when that force can be targeted, we need not deploy large armies overseas. See, there's the dilemma. Because we've already deployed large armies overseas. We've already done it. The Obama doctrine appears to be, in the future, I will try not to get us embroiled in so many money and life-sucking cluster <laughs> Like the ones we appear to be embroiled in at the present and can't figure out how to get out of. See, the Bush doctrine was clear. You got terrorists, we're gonna get you. But it turned out it was a game of terrorist whack-a-mole. <laughs> and it costs $9.7 billion a month to cover only two holes that you can never leave. <laughs> Somewhat unsustainable. Obama's making the case that the future doesn't have to be this way. When innocents are being slaughtered and global security endangered, we don't have to choose between standing idly by or acting on our own. Instead, we must rally international action which we're doing in Libya, where we do not have a single soldier on the ground. See, he's saying, let's not play whack-a-mole. Let's play buck hunter. <laughs> you can just stand back and wait for a dictator, just like Michael Jackson, to walk through the forest. And then, boom! But again, we can only put a new strategy in place once we have ended our current entanglements. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to announce tonight that I believe we may have found the solution buried in some of the post-speech commentary. They have what are called fighting seasons. Having the, all the surge forces leave by next summer is going to compromise next summer's fighting season. And Joe Klein said the, the fighting season begins in the spring when they finish uh, uh, harvesting the opium and it ends in the fall when they need to be on harvesting uh, the uh, marijuana. Great. That's the fighting season. Yeah. Did you catch that? 
see, we here in America, we have four seasons, winter, spring, summer, fall. In Afghanistan, there are but two seasons. <laughs> Fighting season and drug harvesting season. <laughs> the key, ladies and gentlemen, the Stuart Doctrine, if you will, to winning this war, we must, as a nation, devise a narcotic that ripens during their summer drug harvesting lull. PC peanuts, if you will. Methamphetamelons. No, that rots too easy. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you now the key to enduring peace and stability in our country for years to come. A crop that is as addictive as it is hardy, thriving in the punishing Afghani summer heat. Behold, Cractus. Bring the boys home! We'll be right back. Every day is an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines And mm. each town looks the same to me, the movies and the factories And every stranger's face I see reminds me that I long to be Homeward bound, I wish I was Barack Obama's June 22nd announcement of a phased troop withdrawal from Afghanistan was, to many outlets, a bold move. The Los Angeles Times called it a rapid withdrawal. That seems hard to square with the facts. Assuming the plan is actually carried out on schedule, troop levels at the end of 2012 will be about double what they were when Obama took office. So how did war opponents react to the news? According to the June 23rd USA Today, the plan, quote, was deemed a step in the right direction Wednesday by a growing and bipartisan anti-war movement, close quote. That's not how the actual anti-war movement reacted, though, which the article seems to establish since it finds Democrats and a few activists expressing disappointment with Obama's blueprint. The paper seems to have a problem with its Afghan war discussions. The very next day, the paper boasted a headline, Drawdown's Effects Debated. The piece quoted a variety of pro-war voices, including Senator Joe Lieberman and Bush UN Ambassador John Bolton. One expert quoted near the end points out, approvingly, that there will still be many thousands of U.S. troops in the country. That's not much of a debate. But given that the paper apparently thinks the anti-war movement supports Obama's plan, it's not a surprise. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Go, 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 go,
thug life, 50 rolls of dice, they got a surprise, eyes in, mesmerizing, the minds are sick ones, cause what we are is victims of fun, come on, come on, the fun has just begun, come on, the fun has just begun. Last Tuesday in Afghanistan, NATO forces killed at least eight children and three women in a nighttime raid followed by a bombing. This is not the way to win hearts and minds. More than a thousand Afghan citizens took to the streets in Coast Province last Thursday to protest these slayings. They blocked the main highway and chanted anti-NATO and anti-American slogans. You know how many Afghan civilians the U.S. and NATO have killed by now? About 10,000. That's a number you don't hear about much in the corporate media or at Pentagon briefings, or at White House press conferences. But there you are. We've killed 10,000 Afghan civilians to do what? Avenge 9-11? Get bin Laden? 10,000 for one? And he's been gotten by now anyway, so why are we still there? We're there for ulterior reasons, to control oil pipelines in the region, to surround Iran, to establish military bases on the westernmost boundary of China. The Afghan war has cost about $500 billion so far in direct out-of-pocket costs, and the Pentagon's now spending $2 billion a week over there. It's not worth it. Not for the more than 1,650 American troops who've died there, nor for the 10,000 Afghan civilians. And three more years there is three years too many. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. I kicked in the door. I yelled my commands. The children, they cried. But I got my hitman We took him away A bag over his face From his family and his friends They took off his clothes They pissed in his hands I told them to stop But then I joined in We beat him with guns And batons not just once But again and again A hero of war My guest tonight is an author and historian His new book is called Facts Are Subversive That's why I had my encyclopedia arrested Please welcome Timothy Garton Ash Thanks so much for coming on. You didn't have to get up for me. Now, uh, the name of your book is called Facts Are Subversive, Political Writing from a Decade Without a Name. What, what do you mean, facts are subversive? I mean exactly what it says. For example... I, I don't know what it means, though. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have asked the question if I understood that. If we had known the facts about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction, namely he didn't have any, Right. Britain would not have gone to war in Iraq. Maybe the United States would. Well, I, and don't, I don't know. I don't know. Only, are, the facts that, are the facts important there? Because I'm yeah, not a big fan to, of facts. Because feeling is first. And it felt right to take out Saddam. Did it not feel right? right? He seems like a bad guy. seemed dangerous. It feels right to take him down. Later, the facts subverted that good feeling. So what good are the facts? Uh, in subverting that good feeling. Really? You <laughs> want to make me feel bad? I want to make you feel bad. If you <laughs> really? <laughs> if you feel that way. I believe in the reality-based community. Yeah? I mean, for Reality example... Reality is pretty sad. <laughs> Can be. But then we have more need of comedians. 
<laughs> you know what? If you, if you find a good one, tell me about him. Okay. Now, where might I look? John Stewart. <laughs> He's really funny. He's really funny. Let me ask you about the subtitle here. Political writing from a decade without a name. This past decade, you mean? It's a weird decade, uh, which in a way, you know, begins with 9-11 and I think ends on the 4th of November 2008 when Barack Obama was elected president. And I think a very different agenda comes because uh, Obama's election comes with the financial and economic crisis. And suddenly that whole narrative, which is that we're living through the Fourth World War, um, that world history for the next 20, 30 years is all going to be about the battle with um, Islamist terrorism. It doesn't seem to be quite like that anymore. Well, what, where yeah. is the battle? Where is the Fourth World War? Um, I'm not sure, and let's hope there isn't the Fourth World War, but what I do think... I have a, um, an account in this book of a very extraordinary meeting with George W. Bush, in the early summer of 2001. Don't look like that. Oh, I, I'm just saying because I had an extraordinary meeting with him too once. <laughs> so go ahead. I want to I hear about that. But the thing about that meeting, it was two hours before his first official trip to Europe. Islam, Islamism hardly featured. For him, the whole story was about the great geopolitical rivalry with China. And in a curious way, ten years later, we're sort of back at that other story about the great rivalry with, with, with China. So this was a detour for the past 10 well, years. Well, in a curious way, it looks like that. I so mean, to I, some should extent. I be afraid of China? Should I have kept my fear on China? Because I do need to know whom to be afraid of. Right. <laughs> because fear is a great motivator. Well, can you not be afraid of more than one at a uh, time? No, I suppose I can. I, could I used to be afraid of the Soviet Union and China at the same time. Right. Are we in the West? Are we anything anymore? Is there a West if there isn't an oppositional force in the Soviet Union to define us? Well, there isn't the West in the sense we had it during the Cold War, when the United States and Western Europe basically always got together because right. we had a common enemy. Right. And that's not the way it is now. Obama's first thought is not, as by the way even Bill Clinton's was, what am I going to do with Europe? It might be India or China or Indonesia. And the same is true of, um, of many European countries, too. We may be looking to China and India first. You say that Obama doesn't have an east-west outlook. He has more of a north-south. I think that's exactly right. Uh, what, do you, yeah. what do you mean by north-south outlook? Well, I mean what I just said, that he doesn't... But again, <laughs> but again when I ask questions, it generally means I don't understand the subject. I mean, I don't know if you he do it in England. Not, he does not instinctively look to Europe and Obama himself says in his autobiography that he doesn't have that same personal emotional connection to Europe um, and so I think he's a he's a president for the post-western world actually is how does the United States you say that the United States and Europe you fear that they're in great decline an irrecoverable decline I think um, it's almost a case between the United States of Europe, what I might call competitive decadence. Oh, we're uh, going to win that. I wouldn't be too sure. Oh, have you? Have I you, would say. Have you, you, ever, been, have you ever been to the Cheesecake Factory? <laughs> Death by chocolate, my friend. Death by chocolate. Have you been to Greece lately? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> Timothy Garton Ash. The facts are subversive. We'll be right back. Thank you.
today Don't know where he's going He's got lines on his face They tell a story of his pain Wars and revolutions As NATO targets Libyan leader Colonel Muammar Gaddafi The cover story that its efforts are designed to protect civilians is wearing increasingly thin. Daily, its efforts, including the targeting of Gaddafi and the killing of members of his family, look like regime change, suspiciously similar to Iraq of several years ago. Indeed, the pattern is virtually identical. Demonization in the corporate press, no-fly zones, bombing aimed at the leader and or his family, an installation of a Western-friendly puppet who acquiesces to the looting of his country's natural resources for foreign profit. When did the West ever care about Arabs? David Morrison, writing in a recent edition of Labor and Trade Union Review, answers the question thusly. It is inconceivable that the governments of France and Britain and the U.S. embarked on this mission out of concern for the lives of Libyan civilians. In recent years, the U.S. itself has killed hundreds of civilians in Pakistan in drone attacks triggered from the safety of mainland U.S. The slaughter has intensified under the Obama administration, and it is still going on. Has France or Britain ever expressed any concern for these civilian killings carried out regularly by their close ally? Of course not. Morrison goes on to write of the thousands of Lebanese and Palestinians killed by Israeli bombings in 2006, 2008 to 2009, without any call for a no-fly zone from any of the states now leveling Libya. Morrison notes, in the case of Lebanon in the summer of 2006, the U.S. and Britain acted to prolong the conflict and the killing. Clearly, Morrison writes, another reason motivates the Western powers than the suffering or the bombing of Arab civilians, which they or their allies do with reckless abandon. Morrison writes, Though Gaddafi has accommodated himself to Western interests in recent years and opposes al-Qaeda, he has maintained the coherence of the Arab nationalist state he has built and retained a form of socialism in its structures. This is intolerable to Western interests, which prefer to see a mess a la Iraq rather than a strong state pursuing the interests of its people in its own way. The plan, therefore is to destroy the Libyan state under humanitarian and democratic guise. It is of no concern of the West that it may be unleashing a bloodbath. First Iraq, then Libya. That leaves the last Arab socialist state, Syria. That's why France and Britain and the U.S. are bombing Libya. My sentiments, exactly. From death row, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. By the way, Ben, did you see that story? No surprise, because anybody who reads all the 
you know, military magazines and everything, uh, knows that this stuff was in development, but scary to think about it coming to a town near you. Um, the drones that they've been working on that are the size of small birds and can look like them are ready. They're going to start deploying these in testing situations. And, of course, first they'll use them in security situations like overseas, but in the same way that they're using drones now domestically, and that will be expanded over time, mark my words, um, they're going to start using the little ones that look like birds, too. You know, it's funny. James Burke, the great scientific historian, wrote a book with another guy called The Axe Maker's Gift. And in much of his work, he's done this similar stuff where he kind of wonders whether or not human beings can see where their technology is taking them and decide to not go there. You know, if if you look in the future and go, wow, you know, if we continue researching this, we're going to invent a bomb so big we can destroy the earth. Let's not go there. Can you even do that? There are fantastically interesting case examples of people trying to decide that changes in the world would screw up their society so much that they didn't want to go there. Japanese history has an example of that. When firearms were first brought to Japan, they were readily adopted. They started being used in the armies, in the wars that Japan fought amongst you know, the various feudal lords in Japan. They were uh, used in some overseas adventures as well. But then at some point... The Japanese in their society, you know, that was so based around certain codes and swords and, you know, an almost feudal sort of system felt threatened by these guns to a point where they decided they didn't want them anymore. And because they had only a couple of ports where they allowed stuff to be brought in the country, they were able to sort of turn back the clock. They did something even a bigger deal than looking ahead and saying, do we really want to keep researching down this road? They looked at something that was already a part of their lives and said, you know what, we don't want this anymore. And only the fact that they were so able to control imports into the country and whatnot were they able to make that work. But it's one of the few examples where you can go, wow, do such options really exist to the rest of us? If you didn't like the idea of these little bird drones um, spying in our country to protect us from terrorists on every street corner, um, you know, what could you do about that? More on our inability to address anything like that. A little bit later on in the show. Back to the situation in Libya. There was an interesting constitutional face-off, and I guess you could say maybe some elements are still continuing, between the president and the Congress over the legality of what we're doing in Libya. There's something called the War Powers Act that was passed in the early 1970s when Richard Nixon was embattled politically and weakened. Uh, that was intended to try to mitigate some of the problems that had developed in this country since the Korean War. In 1950, Harry Truman took us into the Korean War without declaring war. He doesn't declare war. The Congress declares war. But normally, the president would go to Congress and say, um, you know, we need to declare war, or Congress would declare war, and then the president becomes the commander-in-chief under the Constitution in running the war operation. Now, Harry Truman got around this constitutional requirement that the Congress decides when the country goes to war. After all, it's the more representative body by just saying that the war in Korea wasn't a war at all. He renamed it a police action 
A police action wasn't specifically covered in the Constitution. Hence, the war in Korea that cost more than 30,000 American dead was pretty much a decision that one man was able to make himself by changing the definitions of what constitutes war. Since that time, we have never declared war again. But I think we all know we fought a few. This has become a constitutional loophole. Now, usually what happens is a president will go to the Congress and ask for some sort of support. You know, can we get a resolution supporting what we're doing or whatever? And then this becomes the fig leaf where the president can say, yes, I know war wasn't declared, but uh, look, Congress uh, declared in the resolution their adherence to the goals of the mission, blah, 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 blah. We've seen that now many times. The president is never going to go to Congress again and ask that they declare war so that he can take the nation into a conflict. The reason why is over the last 50, 60 years, the presidency's taken that power from Congress and they're not going to give it back. They're, the reason that they don't want to comply with the War Powers Act, and if you read the language, it's, it's wonderfully tortured, is because the presidents ever since the War Powers Act was passed have said that they're not going to be bound by it, that that's not even, that's a illegal encroachment on the rights of the president. What it really means is it's an, it's an encroachment on the rights the president has stolen since the Second World War, but they're not giving it back. President Obama is no different than President Bush or President Clinton or the other President Bush or Reagan, that they have war-making authority, and if Congress doesn't like it, they can cut funding off, right? Congress has the power of the purse, Dan. They can stop this war anytime they want to. Well, more on stopping the war in... Libya in a second. But let's imagine that Congress decided they wanted out of Afghanistan and more than just the surge. They want, you know, we want to, we want out of Afghanistan tomorrow, Mr. President. And the president says, well, I'm not doing that. To heck with you. And so the Congress says, well, we have the power of the purse. We will not give any more money until, you know, the troops are brought home. Think about that for a minute, ladies and gentlemen. There is no such thing as the power of the purse. You don't cut money to troops in the, yeah, the troops in the field aren't going to have bullets. Or food. Congress is really going to do that. When you realize how absurd the idea is that Congress would ever do that, you realize that this power of the purse thing is a complete myth. Unless you're talking about a situation where we don't actually have troops on the ground. Brings us back to Libya, doesn't it? This is a situation where the power of the purse could be employed creating a precedent, these are important, Congress has very few of these precedents on their side in the last 50 or 60 years, creating a precedent where they actually do overrule the president on an issue of national security. Congress needs to do that. If they cut off funding to the situation in Libya, we would not be able perhaps to fly drones, we would not be able perhaps to provide support for troops on the ground that are there, but it would send a very good constitutional message to the executive branch. And it would not be the same as leaving our troops in the field without bullets and meals and support. Now, there are interesting things that might happen at this point if history's any judge. People forget now what the Iran-Contra thing that happened in the middle 1980s with the Reagan administration was all about. It was all about trying to get around Congress deciding that they didn't want to pay for the foreign policy ideas that the Reagan administration was employing in Central America. The Reagan administration and their head of the CIA during this period, a guy named 
Bill Casey, were in love with the Nicaraguan Contras, which was an insurgency force funded with American dollars. So at a certain point, Congress cut off the money. They did that power of the purse thing. And the president, in order to find the money for the operations, sold weapons to Iran, which was our adversary at this time, just like it is now. And there had been prohibitions written into the law specifically disallowing things like that. Sold weapons to Iran, took the money that Iran gave them for the weapons, gave that money to the Contras in Nicaragua so they could continue operations even though the Congress wasn't going to pay for any of that. That's a possibility in Libya. If the president goes that route, he should be brought up on charges. Reagan should have been brought up on charges. His people were. Oliver North, Poindexter. I love how guys like Poindexter, they, they do this crime, they get convicted of this crime, and now they're, you know, they go back and work for government at very high levels. He helped design a lot of the um, National Security Agency's domestic surveillance programs. Same crop of people. Isn't it always funny, Ben? Those guys just never just, they can go to prison and they come back and they're put in, you know, positions most Americans couldn't even sniff at. Especially not with a criminal record. Now, the rationale that the Obama administration is using to not just not comply with the War Powers Act, but to pretend like they're not even dealing with it. Remember, if they even acknowledge that such a constraint exists on the executive as the War Powers Act, they are backsliding in terms of presidential power. So they've got to write all of their rationales with the whole idea that we're just going to pretend that nobody even brought up this law that every president disagrees with, right? The president says... There is no war in Libya. Hence, there is no need for anything involving, you know, congressional war fighting authority to be involved. If you don't like it, you know, use the power of the purse is what's implied. Congress is implying that they will consider it for once. And in the same way that I said, sometimes election you know, it's not election year anymore, obviously, but it's, you know, we're running up to the election even now. And so all these decisions are predicated upon payoffs by the presidential election in 2012. You get some good things sometimes. From the president, we get the beginnings of a move away from, you know, troop deployments in Afghanistan. And at least rhetoric that implies that we understand that, you know, finances and other things require something like this. The rhetoric is better than nothing. And on the congressional side, you're getting a little pushback from Republicans. Guys like, you know, Boehner are even on this bandwagon, but it's all for political reasons. Believe me, if this was another Republican in the White House, this whole thing would just be reversed. And, you know, you'd have all the Republicans. I mean, John McCain's the only one there saying, what happened to the interventionist Republicans? These people have forgotten. It's our mission to spread, you know, our value, blah, blah, blah. So, again, election year politics giving us some good moves. Um even if they're just for show. Isn't that funny, Ben? It's, it's, we've come to a point in this country where even though the motives are completely cynical and subverted and hidden, the rhetoric, at least, is a fig leaf that makes me feel better about where we are. Just give me a fig leaf at this point. I'll take, I'll take anything. Um, the Congress should cut off the funding for Libya. And let's have a constitutional crisis because right now, this country needs a constitutional crisis. We need some pushback and face-off where we get to have an issue like the questions of when the country goes to war and who makes those decisions get as much attention as Anthony Weiner's tweeted photograph of himself did.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Choosing to quote or not quote particular kinds of people is one way that media show which side they're on. But sometimes reporters just come out and say what they feel. That can get them in trouble unless their opinions don't push the wrong buttons. NBC correspondent Richard Engel, appearing on the network's Meet the Press show on June 19th, called for more bombing in Libya. But I think this debate about Libya, for example, I just came from Libya before I came here, and the fact of the matter is the war in Libya right now is not very serious. The NATO is not doing a terribly good job. Uh, the rebels need a lot more help. Uh, the bombing campaign in Tripoli barely exists. Uh, every once in a while there's a few bombs on mostly empty compounds and people go about their lives more or less unaffected. It's not the kind of thing that's going to drive Gaddafi from power. And a, a lot of European nations who are now trying to lead this, this fight which, and, are, and are struggling to do it are looking at this debate in, uh, within the, in the United States to end the U.S. support for NATO. If the U.S. ended its support for NATO in Libya, NATO really is dead. That was NBC's Richard Engel. There's something telling about a reporter warning about the dire consequences of too much debate over war. Now, it's the right thing to do to start pulling troops out of Afghanistan because we've involved ourselves in a war there with people we never should have been fighting. Americans hear the word Taliban, and in their minds they think terrorist. I'm not sure most Americans understand. Actually, I'm pretty sure most Americans don't understand the relationship of the Taliban to Afghan history. And, you know, ever since the king left in the 1970s, how... Up in the air, that nation's politics and violence connected to politics has been. I mean, the reason everybody was so pessimistic, all those people that said, oh, Afghanistan, the graveyard of empires, when we went in there is because everyone who knows about their history knows that you're not going to walk in there and impose some sort of a stable government on that place. The only people that are going to do that are the people there. That's where the Taliban comes in. The Taliban is a fundamental, militaristic, you know, from our vantage point here in the West, rather nasty, um, you know, indigenous movement. 
supported by a lot of the predominant ethnic group in that area. Pashtuns, Patans, you hear it a lot of ways. And this group of people is a tribally based people. They do not recognize things like borders between Afghanistan and the provinces that border Afghanistan that are nominally in Pakistan. They go, you know, wherever they want to. And there's millions upon millions of them. And we somehow, in our quest for Osama bin Laden, got into a war with them. Mainly because when we asked them to hand over Osama bin Laden, they said no. That's not a war we can win with any sort of the commitment level we have now. There's a very good argument you could make that there's no way to win that war, given the terrain, um, the culture, the you know formidable challenges. I mean, that's a long way away, folks. This is a logistical nightmare, and it costs a fortune. Cost needs to be factored into this. So when President Obama says we're going to start drawing down the troop commitment, you sit there and go, well, there's a good rational decision. John McCain notwithstanding. And as far as the drudge headline that somehow he was going against his generals on this, listen, the best thing the president could do in all these counterinsurgency wars is not listen to the generals at all. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the part of the issue that the media never seems to bring up, which is so obvious and so in front of all of our faces, is that generals have never said, go home and give up the war, or the war is lost, or this is a bad deal to continue fighting. We've said before on this show, the quickest way for an active duty general to lose his job is to say that the job he's tasked with is undoable. Because the first thing you think to your head is, well, then I'll go find a guy who doesn't feel that way. You're never going to succeed. You don't even think it's doable. I'll get a guy who does. So when the you know, president goes and says to the generals, do you think we should get out of this? Or, I mean, is there any way we're, uh, we're going to prevail here? And the generals go, absolutely, there's a way we're going to prevail. I'm not a loser. I mean, the whole thing is so counterintuitive. I mean, the, the, the military brass would still have us in Vietnam if it were up to them. Uh, they never would have stopped the war in Korea where it did. I mean, the whole idea of MacArthur, one of the great generals in American history, maybe overrated, get into a constitutional brawl with Harry Truman, the president who got us into Korea, over how far they should go to fight the war. And Harry Truman was saying, well, listen, I don't want World War III. And General MacArthur was saying... Something to the effect of, you're a wimp if you don't let me nuke these sanctuaries over the Chinese border. The generals never want to go easy, light, or get out. It runs counter to their character, runs counter to the military culture. It runs counter to how these guys get these jobs to begin with. Their can-do people saying that they can't goes against the grain. Go find me active-duty generals in any post-World War II, even in World War II, um, role that advocated retreat or disengagement or anything like that. So the only way you're ever going to get out of wars in this country, given the history, is to not listen to the generals. And it ain't their job to give political advice anyway. That's what got MacArthur fired, you know, when President Truman had to overrule him. So in this case, President Obama is doing the right thing because there's an upcoming election and he's not listening to his generals. And that's the only way he's going to get troops out of Afghanistan in any significant numbers. Here's the problem with that, though. This is a political move. 
There's no problem with that. Sometimes politicians in this country only do the right thing when there's an election coming up and they feel the pressure to do it. But there's two kinds of political moves. There's the kind of political move you make for political reasons, but that really means something. You're going to do something concrete. You wouldn't have done it if you didn't have to, but you have to, so you do. This is doing something that's not concrete because political realities are going to make it really hard on you if you don't at least look like you're doing this. Let me explain what I mean. Folks, you can get different estimates of how many troops are in Afghanistan. The reason why is for the same reason the situation in Iraq is hard to get an actual number on. It's because in addition to soldiers, there are all sorts of people that, let's be honest, are mercenaries um, fighting for you know, security companies and everything else. And not just fighting for, but providing security, doing a lot of things that if they weren't doing it, or if this was 1950, we'd be using our soldiers for. So we can do a 200,000-man troop commitment with 100,000 actual U.S. soldiers. So I'll just give you one of the oft-stated numbers. One of the oft-stated numbers is that we have about 100,000 soldiers in Afghanistan right now. That's just the U.S. commitment. That's the vast majority, but that's the U.S. part. Now, of that 100,000, about 30,000 of those people were part of the uh, surge. You remember when there was a big deal made over the surge, and wasn't it Petraeus, Ben, who was saying, General Petraeus, we need to do this surge just like we did in Iraq, and you get in there, and it'll be a temporary six-month kind of thing, and we'll blast them out and you know make huge progress. Well, been a lot longer than the original time estimates. I don't know if it was six months, but a lot longer than the original time estimates. And those 30,000 temporary troops are still there. President Obama is promising to draw down 10,000 of those guys, 10,000 of the surge that should have been brought back a long time ago, leaving 20,000 of the surge for whom, you know, it's not a surge really anymore, is it? That's just increased troop levels. Spokesman for the Obama administration say another 23,000 more should be out by the end of next summer, which would be, you guessed it, Three months, two months, a month and a half, really, before the next presidential election. So this is a political move, but sometimes political moves, you know, actually get you something good. In this case, though, what the president is doing by lessening our commitment in Afghanistan is simply demobilizing the surge, which was supposed to be, you know, pulled back long before now. Of course, it's not being framed that way. It's being framed like this is the beginning now of needing to concentrate our you know, resources in this country here at home. The president is saying we need to pull back. America needs you know, our efforts here, blah, 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 blah. So by pulling back the surge, we're doing that? No, we're not. Which brings us, by the way, to the second story that kind of is involved in this that I wanted to bring to your attention. The Obama administration's rationale on Libya which is why you can't believe what the president is saying about we need to, you know, these military endeavors are draining us, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, when are we getting out of Libya? Now, I'm still taking flack from people who think that what's going on in Libya is what I asked for. No, I said if Muammar Gaddafi goes door to door and starts executing you know, tens of thousands of his people for retribution after he retakes their towns, we should be prepared to create a safe zone and allow a port so that we could evacuate people, as was done, by the way, in 1922 with American warships off the coast of Turkey during our period, by the way, that people look back on now and call isolationist. 
Now, might my scenario have eventually expanded into what there is now? Yeah, if, we, if the safe zone had been attacked, you'd have, you know, a war going on. You wouldn't have what we have now. You'd have American, you know, tanks in there, and this whole thing would already be over. Now, do I favor anything like that? No, I'm just put in the position, as many of us are, of trying to avert holocausts. And what's the role of the rest of the world in doing that? Now, it does not involve putting drones up in the sky and shooting missiles at people. something that's going to blow your mind even more than when you heard Ricky Martin was gay. There are certain aspects of life that should not be for profit. <gasps> oh my god! A woman screams, a baby cries. Did he just say what I think he did? Profit should not affect certain areas of our existence. The decision as to whether someone gets a life-saving medical procedure should not be made by someone fearing for her job at a health insurance company. Someone who knows that if she authorizes the chemotherapy, it fucks her chances of getting promoted. Someone who will instead tell the cancer patient to try positive thinking, you know, or, or try one of those stress relievers, you know, the ones where you squeeze. So cancer lady dies with a squeezy toy in her hand, and the lady who told her no gets promoted up the ladder where she can tell more people no because they had acne when they were 12. Profit should also not be involved in prisons and the caging of human beings and war and the blowing up of human beings and strippers. I think strippers should be free. Profiting from the destruction of lives, whether it's bombs or metal bars, is repulsive. When someone tells you they're a higher up in the military industrial complex or the prison industrial complex or the kidney transplant denying industrial complex, you should look at them with pity and sadness like they just told you they steal televisions for a living or they write the monologue for the George Lopez show. You should offer to help them find legitimate work selling ice cream or painting fences or spraying the tanner on Mitt Romney's face. You know, people love to say no one likes war as a cop-out when they don't want to argue with you about the moral implications, but it's not completely true. Some people make immense amounts of money from war. The heads of Boeing and KBR and Exxon and Otto's Opium Emporium have made insane amounts of money and likely build Scrooge McDuck-style gold coin swimming pools. Same goes for putting people in prison. Same goes for telling someone who needs a pacemaker that he should try jumping jacks instead. People are getting rich off of the greatest tragedies in our society, and the free market ass-face killers would have you believe that this is appropriate, because then companies will build the best prisons and the best bombs, and that's why unfettered capitalism rocks out with its cock out. And they will. They will build the best prisons and the best bombs, and they'll want to use them a lot. Like a lot. 
like all the fucking time on as many people as possible because the free market is free from moral qualms. It's free from having to give a flying shit about whether donating heavily to a politician who will push through draconian drug laws in order to fill up those for-profit prisons is a bad thing to do. Point is, don't ever think someone else is going to stand up to stop a war. They want as many wars as they can get their hands on because they added a gold coin hot tub next to the swimming pool. And those are the guys deciding other people should be locked up in prison? To catch a predator should go after those assholes. These people are preying on our friends and family. They're denying medical treatment to make a buck, locking people up to make a buck, blowing people up to make a fucking buck. Catch those predators on live TV and enjoy the ratings bonanza, okay? The only problem is that Chris Hansen would have to film one episode every seven seconds because those predators are countless. Pedophiles are small potatoes. You tell me, which is morally worse, a man who tries to get with a 15-year-old girl or a man who sees dollar signs in his eyes as he denies the treatment of a 5-year-old girl with leukemia? You may still believe the pedophile is more morally repulsive, but all I'm saying is, it's a close call. It's a really close call. And one of those two guys is doing something illegal. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm foregoing voicemails today because I have an idea I want to share with you. It's going to take a few minutes. Uh, but if you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I have an idea for you. I, I have an idea. I don't have time to execute it. I want some of you to take action, make this happen, bring it into reality. Let's see if it works. I don't think it'll be that hard to do. And, um, and I think it could be good. So let me get to a little bit of a story first, and I'll tell you what the idea is. So this, a couple of months ago, a listener of the show came through Chicago, where I live, and uh, got in touch with me and offered to buy me dinner. Uh, so side note, if you live in Chicago or you uh, are coming through Chicago and you offer to buy me dinner and you're not crazy, I will probably take you up on that because free dinner. Uh, so... Anyways, so this guy, he comes through Chicago, he buys me dinner, and it's incredibly pleasant. We have great conversation, uh, uh, generally about politics, as you might imagine. And the classic conversation comes up about messaging. Why are Republicans better at messaging than Democrats are? Why can they stay on message and we can't? And, uh, you know, if, if once you think about it, the answer is obvious. The, you know, Republicans are generally authoritarian. They are more than happy to accept instructions from the top down. They receive their marching orders from some uh, focus group. They understand the importance of everyone being on the same page, and that gives them power. Being on the same page actually gives them uh, additional power with their message in the media. And they're happy to regurgitate word for word anything anyone tells them to say if they think that it'll be good for them politically, whereas progressives and Democrats we find that generally repulsive. We fancy ourselves independent thinkers. We have our own ideas on how things should be, and we want to say what we think. We don't want to say what people tell us to think. So it's it's a fundamental problem. 
and trying to work around that is never going to work. What I always think about in, in the midst of this conversation is uh, the famous quote, you've probably heard it from Will Rogers, and I can, I can always remember who he is because I went to Will Rogers Junior High School, and this is the only thing I know about the guy is this one quote. And he, so he said, like 100 years ago, I'm not a member of any organized political party, I'm a Democrat. And to me, what that means is there are things that are fundamentally true when it comes to the mindset of progressives that makes the uh, the institutionalized disorganization of the Democratic Party and the inability to organize progressives is a constant. It is not ever going to change until some sort of dramatic change in our psychology happens where uh, you know where we decide that independent thinking isn't important anymore. That doesn't seem very likely. So, so I started thinking about this problem on this fundamental level. Okay, so Republicans, they're very top-down. They receive their talking points from on high. Hundreds of uh, politicians and pundits can go out on television. They'll all say the exact same words in the exact same way, and they get their message out. And Democrats can't do that. And why is that? Because they can't, they don't take instruction. They don't want to be told what to say. They want to come up with their own ideas uh, or, or decide for themselves what the best ideas are that they want to share. And so, you know, I don't have insider information on like the punditry or anything, but I guarantee that, that this is uh, a lot of, of how this goes down. The people on television, obviously, they, they have. Uh, you know, a platform, they're, they're out there, their words are being recorded, their faces on television, and they want to look smart. So if I were them, and I imagine this is what they do, before going on television to talk about any news story, you, you know, they will think about it themselves, obviously, but also they're going to want to see what other people are saying. What, what are the best points being made on this topic so that they can steal, frankly, the best ideas, you know, and, and appropriate them as their own. They don't have to appropriate them as their own ideas, but say, I heard this really interesting thing and this is what I agree with. You know, it's, it's not nefarious at all. So I kind of, I'm putting these ideas together and thinking this could be how we get progressives on the same page without telling them what to say. So the idea for a website that I want someone to build is a messaging generator. And it would it has to be bottom up because we're not a top down sort of people. So a bottom up grassroots democratic message generator. So this is how I'm imagining it working. Obviously, this idea is flexible, but this is what I came up with. We're talking in real time. News breaks in the middle of the afternoon. It's three o'clock. The news news breaks in the country. Something has happened, and we need to react to it. You know, as progressives, the Democrats, whoever. Politically, this needs to be addressed, and by you know five or six o'clock, the pundits are going to be on the air in prime time, spouting their talking points about you know this is how we've all decided to react to this. So we're not going to focus group. We're not going to send out an email telling everyone what to say. How do we get everyone on the same page? So what I'm imagining is a website that can aggregate suggested messaging points. And so there would be an active community of people who would uh, kind of coalesce around the site. They would, uh, you know, as they are already, they're engaged with the news in real time. And when 
the news strikes, they can submit their talking points. And I, I mean, I can imagine within minutes, but I mean, at least an hour, there could be a hundred suggestions of how progressives should message their response. And this could be like, you know, Twitter sized. I mean, obviously like, I mean, Twitter should be integrated with this. We can get into details later. So, uh, so a hundred suggestions have been made. It's now four o'clock in the afternoon and the same community that has made these hundred suggestions, obviously 95 of them are going to be terrible, completely worthless, uh, but five of them are going to be good. And so the way we find them is to vote on these hundred that have been submitted. Uh, the community that's there, they all vote on the ones they like, don't vote on the ones they don't. The best ones automatically rise to the top. And the best one is just sitting there at the top of the page. So it's now, you know, 530 in the afternoon and the grassroots generated best possible messaging point to respond to the news is sitting there at the top of a website just waiting to be stolen. And so smart pundits and uh, politicians who want to sound smart, want to go on television and make the best point they can, if they know that this website exists, I guarantee that they are going to go to it and check it out because they hope to find something smart, something clever, uh, witty, on point, all of those things together, and so that they can go on television and say it and sound good. And if enough people are smart enough to do this, well, then they will naturally all be on the same point without a single person having to be told what to say. Kind of genius, right? And as soon as I had this idea, I realized that about 80% of this idea has already been worked out and coded into a website called White House 2. So Jim Gilliam is uh, this you know, web developer who's ever so moderately famous in the progressive community because he's had, uh, he and his team have had a series of pretty successful internet ventures where, and their whole point is democratic action. I don't, I mean, small d democratic, uh, you know, we want people involved in politics. We want to make it easy for you. And they create all these, uh, you know, different systems online. And one of them was White House too. And it was developed right as, uh, as Obama was elected. And the idea was to submit agenda items for the White House. This is, hey, we just elected you. This is what the country wants you to do. Everyone was open to suggest their own agenda items. And then everyone got to vote on all of the agenda items. And when two were similar, they would be merged and so on and so on. So what happened was in a very grassroots democratic way, we generated an agenda for the White House to tackle when they came into office. Anyways, so this website, White House 2, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Whitehouse2.org is no longer what it was. It's been shut down. It's not running. But all of the code is now open source. And so this idea that I have, like 80% of it is already done for you. So if you go to Whitehouse2.org, you'll find the open source code and just reappropriate it, you know, add some new uh, graphics integrate Twitter, the whole bit, and boom, you're done. So there you go. You have an idea, 
you have a next step to take, you have some code to explore, go do it. And if you are interested in, uh, in developing this in partnership with other people, get in touch with me and I will get everyone who gets in touch with me in touch with each other and you can go out and change the world. And then once it uh, exists, I will take all the credit for it and promote it like hell on this show and we will create from scratch uh, a community of people to, uh, to make the, the site work. And then we will make sure that all of the pundits and politicians know the website exists. And uh, for the first time in human history, we're all going to get progressives on the same talking point and on the same page. It's going to be like magic. So that's my idea. I welcome feedback. Let me know what you think. And as I say, if you're interested in uh, working on it, get in touch with me. I'll get you all in touch with each other and we'll change the world. Now, I just want to thank uh, volunteers and members before I go. Volunteers Mike, Colette, Todd, Joe, Laura, Emerson. Uh, a couple new volunteers, Mel and Sharice, have just joined. Uh, welcome. And, uh, and special thanks to production assistant Lauren uh, for all of her work. Uh, th- all these people simply make the show run in ways that uh, it just wouldn't without them. <laughs> That's uh, it's pretty pretty cut and dry. And uh, and members of course uh, keep me uh, you know clothed and fed. So Nicole M signed up for her leftist monthly membership back on October 21st and has stuck with the show since then. And Sonia V signed up for a uh, a year long membership back on March 30th and signed up a little bit above and beyond the normal rate and uh, qualified for a socialist membership. So huge thanks to Nicole and Sonia and all the members and donors who keep the show going. Everyone can support the show simply by telling everyone you know about it and, of course, sharing individual clips uh, with your social networks. Check that out at bestoftheleft.com. To stay connected to the show between episodes, join up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought now black and white, Upon a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet